Uh, good morning, Redemption. Well, we see news headlines regularly of domestic abuse. Public figures, celebrities, pro athletes. This is a sad reality in our culture, uh, but it would be naive to think this is not definitely a sad reality in our churches as well. One in four women have experienced or will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Children who witness and experience domestic violence in the home are 1,500 times more likely to be abused themselves. The stats would say that 20 people every minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the U.S. We're going to jump into a heavy topic today, uh, and it's an important topic, though, because it affects people who Jesus loves. And if we only deal with the happy stuff and not the hard stuff, then we're probably not following Jesus, right? Uh, we're in Malachi 2, and so if you need a Bible, if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you need a Bible, if you would raise your hand, our ushers would love to come and bring you one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep it. That is our gift to you. <clears throat> well, here at Redemption, uh, we hold uh, what has sometimes been called the three A's can be uh, grounds for divorce. That's adultery, abandonment, and abuse. And here in this passage of Malachi, he gets into all three. We have an updated membership statement that's coming out here in the next month or so um, that's got some more explicit uh, stuff about this. And given that Malachi is addressing all of these things in this passage, we thought this would be a good time uh, within the redemption congregations uh, as a whole to talk about and address this important topic. <clears throat> now, uh, the way we'll kind of approach today is the first half, I want to teach through Malachi and what's happening in the passage, and this will set us up too for the second half, where we'll look more explicitly at abuse and what this means for us as followers of Jesus who are seeking to follow him today. These topics can be controversial and emotionally loaded, uh, partly because there is an extremely high value on marriage. God loves marriage. He created it to image and reflect and display his sacrificial love and mutual self-giving as a signpost of his kingdom to the world. Yet what happens, what do we do when it goes south? Uh, the title for the sermon this morning is God Hates Abuse. Let's jump into Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. All right, well, the first thing we see here is that when you're cheating on her, you're cheating on God. The men here are cheating on and leaving their wives. And the word that God uses for this here is faithless. It could also be translated as treachery or treason. They're committing treachery against their wives and treason on God. When they run after these uh, other women, they are also pursuing these pagan practices, these idolatrous practices. They are worshiping other gods and bringing these idols into the sanctuary. And there is the reality that when you commit adultery, you are worshiping another god. You may not be bowing down to a little stone statue, but the one true god of the universe, the one who you are called to image, is a god who is faithful, is a god who commits himself to his spouse, who says, I will be here with you and for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not betray you. 
God is a God who is faithful. And so when we betray the covenant with our spouse, we're implicitly worshiping another God. We are imaging and reflecting selfish little gods who pursue their own self-interested pleasure rather than the one they were called to live towards in faithfulness. It's worth noting here, on a side note, that when it says foreign women, uh, the problem here is not interracial marriage, it's interreligious marriage. And not just any religion, it's more specifically God's covenant, Yahweh with his people. And the problem was pursuing and going after those who worship other gods. Uh, God has no problem with interracial marriage. It's blessed and awesome and legit, right? Um, we see Rahab and Ruth. Yes. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah. You're Brazilian, Korean, Anglo, it's good. It's awesome. God rejoices and celebrates. Interracial marriage is good. We see many of them in the Bible. The issue is whether the two people are pursuing the one God together, right? Uh, the issue is one of uh, God wanting... Now, if you're already married and you find yourself in a situation, then the gospel tells us to, uh, to be faithful and live within that. But if we're talking about exploring marriage and pursuing marriage, there's an important weight that God puts here on his people being united with those. If you, Jesus, and his kingdom are first and foremost in your life, that it's important for marriage that you enter into union with someone who shares that value, that Jesus is first and foremost in your marriage. And his kingdom is the foundation you guys are building a life on together. Okay, well, these men are also tearing the family of God apart. Malachi says, you know, have we not one father? Has not one God created us, right? And the, uh, the, the picture here is going, these men were likely not just husbands, but also fathers of their families. And so uh, they're not reflecting the fatherhood of God, well, to their children, to their family, and for the generations to come. Your relationship with God is not individual or a solo thing. It's intertwined with the lives of others. And God essentially says here, when you're messing with her, you're messing with me. Our life with God is bound up with others. And when Jesus tells us to love your neighbor, the most intimate neighbor in your life is probably the one that you share a bed with, right? Now, there is the, what has sometimes been called the proximity principle, that when God gives his commands, it's important that we love those who are far away and those who are whatever, but it's most powerfully lived out with those who are in closest proximity to us. Those are those that we are especially called to lay our lives down for and display an image, the character of God too, because they're the ones that realistically we're in life on life with day in and day out. All right, the men are singled out here. They are the focus. Now, in the ancient world, uh, women were much more vulnerable in just the ancient world as a whole and in a more patriarchal culture within marriage as well. If he left, where was she going to find food, provision, security? If he cheated, what leverage did she have to get him to stop? Professor uh, Dallas Willard, the late Professor Dallas Willard, he describes the damage that husbands in the ancient world did when they divorced their wives. He says here that as for most times and places in human history, back in this time, uh, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Except for some highly unlikely circumstances, her life was simply ruined. No harm was done to the man, by contrast, except from time to time a small financial loss and perhaps bitter relationships with the ex-wife's family members. For the woman, however, there were only three realistic possibilities in Jesus' day. 
She might find a place in the home of a generous relative, but usually on grudging terms and as little more than a servant. She might find a man who would marry her, but always as, quote-unquote, damaged goods and sustained in a degraded relationship. Or she might, finally, make a place in the community as a prostitute. Society simply would not then, as ours does today, support a divorced woman to any degree or allow her to support herself in a decent fashion. So if you were a woman in this scenario uh, whose husband was cheating on or leaving you, you needed a defender, ideally your parents or the surrounding community. But in this scenario, God's saying, I'm going to arise to be your defender. As the covenant is being broken and you are being mistreated, I am arising as your defender. Now, the reality is men are still more likely to cheat today. Um, not always. I have two friends in the last two years or so, husbands who have been cheated on and, and left by their wives. And so it's a reality that goes uh, both ways today, more so than it did back then. Uh, and yet there is still a, something that's significant and worth looking at, um, that men statistically are more, more likely to cheat. Uh, one story that kind of illustrated this uh, for me was the Ashley Madison scandal. So a couple years ago, Ashley Madison was the world's kind of number one uh, dating, cheating website, places where people went to cheat on their spouses. They boasted around 40 million users, and hackers broke into their database and released the names to uh, the public. One of the things, though, that happened in the aftermath of the story that was uh, maybe less reported on but was interesting is they discovered Ashley Madison liked to present itself as kind of this equal playground with men and women equally kind of looking and pursuing affairs. Uh, but the reality beneath the surface was very different. What they discovered was the men on the site so drastically outnumbered the women that Ashley Madison, the company, had created, um, t they had created tons of fembots, basically like digital bots designed to mimic and act as women to lure in the men. So this is Annalee Newitz reporting for Gizmodo. Says Ashley Madison created more than 70,000 female bots to send male users millions of fake messages, hoping to create the illusion of a vast playland of women. Ashley Madison's army of fenbots appears to have been a sophisticated, deliberate, and lucrative fraud. The code tells the story of a company trying to weave the illusion that women on the site are plentiful and eager. A group of engineers tried to create bots that would make men feel like they were in a world packed with eager, available women. Whatever the total number of real, active, female Ashley Madison users is, the company was clearly on a desperate quest to design legions of fake women to interact with the men on the site. So, <sighs> cheating affects both men and women, but I kind of want to speak to the guys for a minute because this, it, it, we have a society that whether we're talking about advertising, whether we're talking about pornography, whether we're talking about stuff like, like this, um, is wanting to present this image that is a lie, like she's not really that into you, right? And this technology has not created the sin. The sin has been there, it's as old as time, uh, but the technology has made the ease of opportunity to sin much stronger. So I believe uh, as men and women, but particularly as guys, we need to be on guard, proactive in being vigilant in shutting down temptation. Because as Malachi would say, when you're cheating on her, you're cheating on God. Okay, let's move forward in verse 13. It says, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom 
you have been faithful. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. All right, well, here we see that grace ain't cheap. And I'm not talking about a person named Grace here. I'm talking about the grace of God, right? That we have this picture here where the guys who cheated are crying out to God and God is not listening. And I think there's an ironic contrast here. Like, you made your wife weep. Now God's making you weep. She was weeping those tears because you wouldn't listen to her. Now you're weeping these tears because God won't listen to you. It's coming back upon you. And why doesn't God listen? Well, he says, because I was witness to the covenant that you made with your spouse. The covenant is significant. This is not a small trifling matter. It's not something to be messed with. The covenant to God is significant. It bears witness to God's relationship with his people. The covenant is not only with your spouse, it's with the God before whom you unite as one. And to betray that covenant is to preach a false gospel. If God has designed marriage as a sign, a witness of his faithfulness to us as his people, then to betray the covenant is to image and reflect a false gospel of a God who will ultimately betray and leave, abandon his people. And so the penalty for this is severe. God says in verse 12, I will cut you off. And it's the same word that's used for cutting a covenant. Uh, today when we get married and we give our vows, uh, we just, we do the covenant through the giving of vows, right? But back in the day, it was different. Back in this day, uh, what they would do is they would cut a covenant by slicing uh, an animal down the middle. And uh, we see this in Genesis 15. And they would walk through the animal pieces together as a way of saying, if I betray this oath, if I betray this covenant, may I become like these animals that have been cut apart. And God is essentially saying here, you've betrayed the covenant you've made. You cut off your wife, and God will cut you off. God will Lorraine and Bob at you, right? <laughs> Some people remember that one. Okay. <laughs> so the question arises, <laughs> does God no longer have grace for people who cheat or leave? Does God no longer have grace for people who cheat or leave? Uh, there is grace, but it's costly. It cost, ultimately, it cost God his son. And I think sometimes we are too quick to run to rest, jump to restoration when we haven't yet really dealt with repentance. Right? That there's this picture here of they're crying out and God's not listening. Right? And I think of uh, someone who, years ago, I was counseling a marriage, and in this case, it was the wife who was leaving. And she said, um, essentially, I'm done. He hasn't done anything bad. He's actually a great husband. It's been good, but got a big pay raise, making 150 grand a year now. I want to go hit the beaches and have fun and just do, do my thing, right? And she said, I know that there's grace for me if I stay, but I also know there will be grace for me if I leave. And my comment was, I wouldn't be so sure. And here's what I mean by that. It's going, Jesus has identified with his church. God has identified with his people. And your marriage is wrapped up and bound up in that union of God with his people. And your husband is a part of that. And so the reality is, is as you're walking away from your husband, you are walking away from Jesus. And yes, grace is still there for you, but it is there for you through confession and repentance 
and returning to Christ by returning to your husband and the body of Christ in whom your marriage is bound. I think of communion that we receive each week and the significance that this is a body that makes us a body. This is the body that forms us as the body of Christ, the people of God. This is Jesus giving us himself to form us as his people. And you think about, like, you go and you, let's say you have tacos, right? Like, you eat a taco and you, it comes into you. It becomes a part of you. It enters into your life. But the irony is, communion works the opposite direction. Like, you take it and you become grafted into it. We receive the body and blood of Jesus. We become grafted into the body and blood of Jesus in union with both him and his people that he has identified with in the covenant given in his body broken and his blood shed. And so, yes, there is grace, but it is a grace through confession and repentance. And not a cheap repentance, but one that is willing to own it all and seek reconciliation. The other thing we see here is that marriage is oriented towards family. Uh, Malachi says, what was it that God was seeking? Godly offspring. And he says, you know, God has given them, has he not given them the spirit of God in their union? He's pointing here to the reality that, like, God makes the next generation through us, right? Like, I've always found it uh, significant that God makes Adam and Eve, he makes the first two, but then he entrusts the miracle of creating the human race to us. And part of the purpose of marriage, not the only purpose, but one, is creating a stable foundation for children, for family, for the next generation to enter the world. And so when you're cheating on or leaving your spouse, you're attacking the foundation for the future of the world that God has set. And it's, when we talk about, you know, Malachi saying God's heart for raising godly offspring, raising godly offspring, it's not just the words you say, it's the actions that you do. And your actions are bearing witness, they're leaving a mark on the next generation's intimate growing up in this reflection that God's given, he's designed it to reflect his heart for them as father. And you're using it to tear that family apart. Malachi also points to the wife of your youth. You betrayed the wife of your youth. Your spouse is a means of grace in your life. I believe that God desires for your spouse to be a means of grace in your life. So sometimes the new fling, the kind of fancy temptation or whatever, it can look uh, really appealing, like it's going to be more fulfilling, but there is a difference between the endorphins on the first run around the track and the endurance that comes in the marathon. Like with someone who knows you, who has seen you in your highs and lows, who has gone through the valleys and the trenches with you, there is a grace that comes through that kind of union, that kind of relationship that the passing fling can't match. Don't Forsake the wife of your youth. That's good. All right, let's go to verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We see in this passage that adultery, abandonment, and abuse are all forms of violence that break the covenant and set oneself in opposition against God because God hates abuse. This garment image, when he says that uh, the garment 
becomes stained with violence, right? The garment image, it was an image in the ancient world in this day uh, for covering over someone. We see this in the book of Ruth, like the covering of the garment was a sign, an image of the covenant of going, she's coming under his provision, under his protection, because uh, to be a woman and enter a covenant in that day was to place oneself in a vulnerable position with the man, right? It was to place oneself in a vulnerable position of uh, bearing and having children together to place oneself in a vulnerable position of living intimately with someone who is generally bigger and stronger than you. It was to place yourself in a vulnerable position in terms of your future livelihood and all those kinds of things. And so this image of covering uh, with with one's garment, it was a sign of commitment of going, I'm going to keep you warm, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to serve you. Like within our life together, I'm going to use who I am to serve you. And God's going, that same garment that you covered as a commitment to serve and protect and care for and nurture, you are now using to hurt and to demean and to to diminish the well-being of the one that you entered into covenant with. And God sees that as a form of violence against the person. Even when it's not physical violence here, the cheating and the leaving are forms of violence against the person created in God's image, an object of God's affection that you were entrusted in covenant to love. When we think of the covenant promises, the promises were to have and to hold, not to punch and to hit. The promises were to love and to cherish, not to push down and to diminish. And the reality is today, there is still a power dynamic between husbands and wives. Like generally, uh, men on average are taller, are stronger than women. Men on average have about 33 to 40% more uh, muscle mass, more upper body strength. Men uh, on average have greater bone density, a wider waist, larger hands and feet. Now the reality is we're gonna talk more about abuse, abuse here now is that uh, it can happen the other way as well. Uh, Women can abuse the man as well. And so if you're in that situation today, I I wanna ask that you would hear uh, everything that's said be applicable to you as well. But for uh, the sake of just brevity and talking, uh, the reality is that the vast statistical majority of the time, it's occurring from the husband towards the wife. And so we're going to get a little more teachy than preachy now here for a minute to try and cover some ground here. And uh, what I want to do is first talk about the biblical case for abuse as grounds for divorce. And then second, talk about what do we mean by abuse. Okay, so first, the biblical case for abuse as grounds for divorce. Uh, We're going to look at a few key biblical passages here. You can put up the slide. Feel free to write those down if you want to go read them later, but for brevity, we're kind of trying to walk through uh, what's going on in these. And what we see in each passage is that God is, uh, either confronts men or empowers women. In each of these passages, God is either confronting men or empowering women. It's the Old Testament, starting in Exodus 21, verses 7 to 11. Uh, this verse is, these, these verses are concerning the protection for a female daughter who sold into slavery. Now, the Bible was written uh, to, this, you know, to an ancient world uh, where polygamy, uh, forced servitude, things of that nature were common, rampant throughout the ancient Near East and the ancient world. And so rather than an overnight revolution, God speaks 
and raises the bar on how people in some of the most vulnerable positions were to be treated in their society. And in this passage, we're told that if the guy, if the husband takes another wife to himself, in verse 10, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. She, she, she can, she's free to divorce him. Uh, now, the Jews uh, saw this in the Old Testament as, um, first they argued from kind of like the lesser to the greater, going, if this applies to the least of these, the most vulnerable in society, then this applies just in general for all as, as case law. And so uh, if this applies to uh, someone who's a slave or in forced servitude, this applies to free women as well. They also saw in this uh, the, three foundations for the three foundations of the marriage covenant, the commitment for food, clothing, and what some translations uh, call conjugal rights. And the point here in Exodus 21 is going for the husband to neglect their wife as a form of abuse. God protects the woman in this situation with an accommodation for divorce, allowing divorce. Going to Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 to 14. The context here, this, this is about protection for women who are prisoners of war. And if something uh, displeased the husband, they weren't getting along, we're told that he could not treat her brutally or sell her. But rather, in these kind of circumstances, was to give a certificate of divorce and let her go free. Again, uh, we have a situation where uh, the person who is breaking the covenant is the husband, and God has an accommodation here to protect women, and particularly in this passage, this case law, the most vulnerable one of society from uh, being in an abusive scenario. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, uh, is about protection for unloved wives, and basically uh, says that if a husband divorced her and left her, and she got married to another, the first husband couldn't take her back. And uh, one of the things this meant was that, hey, you got to check yourself, think twice before you let her go, right? It was confronting men who were maybe going to be too, really quick to let their wives go. What we see in these Old Testament passages is that we see God's heart empowering women in vulnerable situations. And we also see that what's breaking the covenant is not her seeking refuge, but him violating the vows. We're going to the New Testament, Matthew 5, verse 31 to 32. Jesus confronts men who are divorcing their wives for reasons other than sexual immorality, cheating. Similarly, in probably the most significant New Testament passage on divorce, Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9, uh, Jesus is asked by teachers of the law, hey, so is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, that was happening in the day. That was one interpretation of Jewish law, a prominent one that said basically they would burnt the dinner, done, right? Like got a few too many wrinkles, done. And Jesus confronts them. He confronts the men who are divorcing their wives frivolously, and he says, no. First thing he does, he goes back to creation. Have you not read Genesis 1 and 2, that God made the male and female and said, the two will become one flesh? He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's confronting those who are frivolously separating and breaking this true union that God has joined. This create, they're, they're fracturing the creation that God has made in marriage. The next thing Jesus says is that this was allowed in the uh, this was allowed by Moses because of their hardness of heart. He confronts the men's sin that are going because of your hardness of heart. Uh, I think in some ways God was 
creating accommodation to protect women from being stuck and winding up dead or um, constantly being abused in a horrific relationship. And Jesus also in this passage, he acknowledges sexual immorality as grounds for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 to 16, and Paul here explicitly affirms uh, abandonment as a grounds for divorce. And the logic here uh, is um, that the person who is abandoned really is the one who has broken the covenant, who has shattered the marriage. Divorce isn't so much ending the marriage as it's acknowledging what the other has already done. It's acknowledging this fracturing, this fragmentation of the divorce through abandonment. So in conclusion, what we see in all of these significant passages is that God consistently confronts men who are abusing their power and protects women who are being violated by their abuse of power. Submit to you that God hates divorce because God loves people. God hates the violence it does to people that he loves. God is committed to his people. Divorce is always tragic. Nobody knows this better than the person who's been abused, abandoned, or betrayed. It's not a good thing. It's not a tool in our tool belt. It's always a tragedy. Divorce takes something that God has made to reflect his love for us in the world, and it shatters it. It's a tragedy to be lamented. And yet, we also see that God makes an accommodation because of the impenitence, hardness of heart, to protect the vulnerable from the greater evil. We see that what breaks the covenant is adultery, abandonment, and abuse, not the person seeking refuge or to name what has already been done. So, divorce is never a good thing. Again, no one knows that better than the person who's enduring abuse, abandonment, adultery. Uh, but it can be a permissible thing, a thing that God accommodates in the face of greater evil, this unrepentant pattern of impenitent, hardened sin. Okay, well, the next question then, if that was the kind of biblical case, some of the biblical case for this, the second question then is, what do we mean by abuse? When is it grounds for divorce? Uh, because one challenge is that the language of abuse can be a broad and slippery term today. We can mean a lot of different things by it, right? My wife said something mean to me the other day. Can I, can I get out, right? Like, no, that's not, that's not what's being said here. I think a helpful place to start is the standard definition uh, used by professionals in our society is <clears throat> this, that domestic violence occurs when one person in an intimate relationship exercises power and control over the other through a pattern, a pattern of intentional behaviors, including psychological, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. This is a systematic tearing down of the woman inside her own home. And it's worth recognizing that it's not just physical. This can include emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial, verbal. So if it's so broad, then how do you know when we're talking about grounds for divorce? Well, I want to suggest three criteria that I think can be helpful for discernment, trying to navigate this. Three criteria. Uh, the first would be this, to say, uh, there is a difference between an incident and a pattern. There's a difference between an incident and a pattern. All of us have had a controlling moment, have lost our cool, have spoken a harsh word, 
Uh, my wife and I have said things to each other that we regret, uh, comments that could have been uh, felt to be abusive at times. In a healthy relationship, the difference is in a healthy relationship, you apologize, you own it. You feel bad about it. The next day, you seek reconciliation with one another. What we're talking about here is systemically different. It's systemically different. We're talking about a pattern to manipulate and control. We're talking about someone who doesn't feel sorry generally, but feels entitled. And generally in these patterns, they have a tendency to escalate and get increasingly worse over time. Experts would say that's a key signal here is that the pattern tends to escalate. That someone here is using his strength to manipulate, control, silence, demean, or push down, rather than to serve, build up, and lift up as well. I think it's helpful if we think here of the image of God, the Imago Dei in, in someone, that God's vision is in marriage is that you're using your strength to help the image of God in her to shine, to flourish, grow into herself, more, more into who she is in that way. Whereas what's happening here is the image of God is wilting. They still have it. We always have the image of God. But you're using their strength, your strength to demean, to push down, to diminish. An incident of abuse is always sin. It's always wrong. It's not always grounds for divorce. Uh, what, but what we're looking, talking about here is a pattern. Okay, a second thing that I think can be helpful to distinguish is that there's a difference between a hard marriage and a dangerous marriage. Between a hard marriage and a dangerous marriage. Uh, two examples, two stories to illustrate. I remember years ago, I was counseling uh, someone, and uh, this was the guy, and he was going, um, calling up, man, she's abusive, she's abusive, she's abusing me. And I was like, okay, I believe you, but can you tell me, can you give me something concrete, like what's, what's going on? Wouldn't give me any concrete. It's just she's abusing me. So after three times, about an hour each time, sitting down and walk through, finally I'm like, I believe you. Just I need some. Like, can you give me some concrete examples? What are we talking about here? And um, it's like, okay, well, a few months ago I made us late for this party, and she raised her voice to me in the car, and something was very nice. And it's like, dude, that's just marriage. Like, that's, you know, like, like. <laughs> and we walk, you know, we walked through it with her, and then came to find out a couple weeks later that he'd been having a divorce for more than, I mean, having an affair for more than six months prior to that time. It's like, dude, you just wanted out. You were just trying to use an incident of something that, whatever, you were just trying to get out. That would be a hard marriage. Like, I knew enough about scenario to go, okay, you guys are in a hard marriage, and there's healing that can come through this. On the other side, there's a dangerous marriage. I mean, another person, a friend from back home, who had sought counsel, had sought help, was in a repeating, escalating pattern of violence in the home. I was consistently told, well, just try and love, try and love them more, go back, whatever, and um, ended up being beaten so bad that she has permanent brain damage and is now a single mother trying to raise her three children on her own. That is a dangerous marriage. That is tragic counsel that she was given. And a dangerous marriage is not always or only just physical violence, right? Like, as we said, like, it can be emotional and verbal as well, a pattern of emotional and verbal abuse. Uh, the abuser can be charismatic or suave, right? They can have a different face that they present to the community. I think of one person who was sharing, she said, you know, my husband, he opens the door for me at church, but only at church. 
is he cares what other people think. But it's a radically different situation from what happens at home on the inside. Yeah, I think the question is, is the Imago Dei, the image of God, is it flourishing in her around his presence, around his leadership, around his strength? Or does she come alive or does it make her more scared, more timid, wilty? Abuse in this regard, it's not a quote-unquote marriage issue, it's a sin issue. What I mean by that is um, the question is not like, well, hey, what did you do to contribute to this? The question is, how can we get you safe? When the issue is a sin issue in the heart of the individual that needs to be dealt with and confronted and dealt with before any kind of meaningful restoration can take place. Okay, so there's a difference between an incident of abuse and a pattern of abuse. There's a difference between a hard marriage and a dangerous marriage. And the other is, there is a difference when it comes to the abuser between true repentance and fake repentance. Fake repentance is the bare minimum. It's the difference between the bare minimum and the I'll do whatever it takes. So fake repentance, the bare minimum, says, hey, I'll say I'm sorry so that you don't leave. I'll do the bare minimum to avoid the consequence, but I won't own and take responsibility for my problem. True repentance, the I'll do whatever it takes, says, I have a problem. I need a new trajectory. I'll do whatever it takes to get healthy so you and our marriage can thrive. That could mean I'm going to respect boundaries if we need to separate for a season while I deal with my junk and get healthy. Could mean that, yes, you have access to my phone and email passwords. You can see what's going on in my social media and my communications. It may mean uh, that, yes, I need to see a counselor or work with law enforcement if appropriate. Maybe I need to confess with a pastor and close friends, acknowledge that I need help. Cheap repentance tends to focus on you, like, okay, I'll do the bare minimum so that you, you, you feel okay about saying this. Costly, true repentance focuses on me, like, I need to own the junk that's in my life, bring it fully before Jesus before you and before others, right? So if you're hearing this this morning and you're in an abusive marriage, I want you to hear loudly and clearly from me as a lead pastor here in our church that this is not okay, this is not your fault, and we've got your back. Jesus is a defender. Two weeks ago, God defends those he loves, and God loves you. Jesus is your defender, and we as your church, we want to join you. We want to be the body of Christ in being an advocate for your defense as well. God loves and values the covenant, and he says, what you're doing to her, you're doing to me. If you're beating up on my daughter, I'm going to rise up against you. And so this is not something to be lightly, and it does raise the question again, like, is there hope for the perpetrator? And the answer in the gospel is yes. Grace is here for you, but it ain't cheap. It costs God his son. And so the invitation is to recognize, like, Jesus didn't just die to wipe away your past. He died to transform your future. 
And the invitation is not to the kind of cheap fake repentance that goes, okay, I'll just do the bare minimum to keep folks happy. It's going, no, it's coming forward to go, I need to own all my stuff. Again, whatever that means, that could mean with a counselor, with law enforcement, that may mean a time of separation to get healthy. Uh, And my encouragement to you would be, you're not meant to do this alone. The reality is things fester and gain control when they're in the darkness. Not only in our personal lives, but even within a marriage. If you think, hey, I, just, I can handle this if I just go on my own. Like, things lose their power when they come out in the light, before Christ, before others. And it's worth not hiding stuff and trying to go with it on your own. It's worth going, dude, if you're going to access the hope of the gospel, you need to reach out for the help of the gospel. So there is hope for you. And my encouragement is to reach out for the help of the gospel. Because Jesus is one who loves to heal and restore and make all of us whole. So the signs of true repentance, if that's you. One, it's owning it all. Not just with your spouse, but with others. Two, it's submitting to godly authority. Letting others into your life, including the dark places. And three, it's respecting boundaries. The space your spouse might need right now that the end game is for flourishing. And in conclusion, I have no doubt that Jesus stands strongly against our frivolous culture of no-fault divorce. Yet I also believe strongly that Jesus is a defender of those who find themselves in a no-win situation, a marriage with a hard-hearted and penitent person who is repeatedly and unrepentantly violating and breaking covenant to love and to cherish. So as we come to the table this morning, I recognize that this uh, can be a, a conversation that can stir up many wounds, maybe some past wounds, maybe some present ones. Um, we want to be here as a church for one another. Uh, if you want prayer this morning, uh, we'll have our usual prayer team as well as myself and other pastors, elders are going to be up at the front by the prayer doors. If you want someone to pray with, uh, to, man, to bring anything that, that is going, we're going to be here not only during communion and worship, but after the service as well. Um, it was great after the last service to have the chance to, to meet and pray with, uh, with a number, number of folks. I want to let you know we are available here for you this morning. And as we come to the table, we come to Christ, the faithful one. We come to Jesus who has committed himself to us and said, I will never abuse, abandon, or betray you. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus will never mistreat you. We come to Christ, the eternal Son of God, who laid down his life for his bride, has used his strength not to tear down but to build us up, that the image of God might shine and be radiant and restored and whole, that we might flourish in his presence. And if you're here this morning, you need grace. That grace for you is here at the table. But just remember that it is not a cheap grace. It cost God his son. And so I would call you to come, but don't come in an unworthy manner. Don't come unless you're willing to own it all, to seek not only his wiping away of your past, but his transformation for your future and everything that that entails, committing yourself to the road ahead. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. We come to Christ, our defender, who is with those, he defends those he loves, he is with us in the trenches. We come to his body 
given and his blood shed, which is a sign that he is with us in the hardest places. And likewise, that he is faithful to carry us through and that he is a defender, ultimately. He is one who defends those he loves and is with us as his bride. And he is not going to stop at anything less than our full restoration as his bride and the fullness of his kingdom. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are the faithful one. Thank you that you have used your strength not to tear us down, but to build us up, God. That you will never, would never abandon, abuse, or betray us. God, we rely and bank on your faithfulness. Lord, I'm just thinking even now that image of being covered uh, with the garment, how that you have, God, united and drawn us to yourself, wrapped us with your commitment to us. God, this covenant in your body broken, your blood shed, God, to be your people forever. I pray, Lord, for any this morning who might be in the trenches of abuse. God, I pray that they would know and experience even now that you would minister to them through your spirit, your presence with them, your love for them. And God, that you would give them whatever wisdom, courage, discernment is needed, and the people around to support and walk through the, the season ahead, God. God, I pray for any who have abused, have abandoned, have betrayed the covenant that they made. God, I thank you that you are a God who comes after violators of the covenant to restore and make us whole. God, I pray this morning that uh, there would be that hope of the gospel, but an awareness that it is a a costly repentance, not a cheap one, that the grace cost you your life, and yet you were willing to pay it to bring us towards a better new future. And God, I pray for all of us, Lord, as a community. Thank you that you defend those that you love, that you are with us as your people. God, Uh, God, we want to We want to worship you this morning for your faithfulness. And we want to commit ourselves, God, to being with you, to defend those you love, who find themselves in impossible situations, God. Guide us and show us. May we be a community, Lord, captive set free, of wounded made whole, and of people who experience the life and abundance together of you from you. Jesus, in your name and for your glory that we pray.